This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Connecting to new players. CIA database highlights. Political horror. And Emperor Norton. April, the secret masters at Atlas Games kickstarted a new edition of Unknown Armies. It's the legendary occult RPG where horribly broken people conspire to fix the world. Now, the books are at press and digital rewards are starting to land with Kickstarter backers. But not everyone was conscious in April for this dramatic shift in the invisible clergy. Maybe you were asleep, unaware of the occult underground. Maybe you were just doing something else in April. It matters not! You can still pre-order everything offered and unlocked during the Kickstarter and get it all as soon as it's available. From the deluxe edition, whose three volumes are wrapped with a slipcase that unfolds into a GM screen... To PDF, EPUB, and Moby digital editions, not to mention three all-new soundtrack cycles composed especially for this project. Pre-order at atlas-games.com backslash UA3 pre-order. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's good to be awake. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly, shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And in the Gaming Hut, Patreon backer Vincent Arebolo's son Dax, or perhaps Dax is the Patreon backer, perhaps they back jointly, has asked us a question, said question being... I like RPGs, but find it hard to engage myself with other players with whom I am not familiar. What techniques do you suggest for me to engage, Robin? Uh, well, the advantage of uh, role-playing, if you're a little shy the way that I was and, uh, and actually mostly am, is that it gives you a sort of a codified preset way of interacting with people, so that rather than having to immediately strike up small talk with someone that you're joining at the gaming table for the first time, whether that's at a convention one-shot or a new player who's uh, joining your ongoing group, you can use the mechanism of playing a role-playing game to sort of get to know people a little better. So the first thing I would recommend is, first of all, give the GM a chance to do any introductory stuff that the GM is planning to do. I would argue, and, and I would flip this on its head and say, hey, GMs, especially ones running convention one-shots, be aware of this dynamic and make a point of doing something to introduce the players to one another, which I have to admit to not... Well, first of all, I don't run very many convention games, but it's something that I'm going to do in future if I'm at a con where the people sitting there are obviously strangers with each other. I'm going to come up with a way for people to start engaging uh, with one another. But let's say you have your typical GM who hasn't thought of that, and it's just a straight-up, you know, D&D uh, &D game, and it's like, okay, uh, pick your character sheets and let's go. Uh, if you sense that that is happening without trying to wrench focus away from the GM too much, strike up a conversation sort of half in character uh, with the other players, uh, maybe each in turn. And so, for example, you know, the person sitting next to you, hi, I'm Dax, and I'm playing... Uh, a druid and uh, my 
familiar as a badger. And what are you playing? And so ask, and he's just picked up a sheet for the first time. And, uh, and then maybe say, so why do you think our two characters are friends? Why do we hang out uh, with each other? And if you've given him enough to go on, you know, I'm a druid and I have a badger and, uh, I, you know, I'm Thorn Oakleaf and everyone in my family has been druids for generations and I talk a lot about nature. So, uh, who are you and why would you hang out with me? And so that then gives that player the opportunity to say, oh, well, I'm Siva Muckrake. I'm a dwarven journalist and uh, I explore new realms in order to uh, write up my journal and then take information back to the, the dwarves uh, in my homeland who uh, really enjoy my reports of exploration because most of them don't like to go above ground. And the reason I hang around you is because I met you while I was exploring and uh, your uh, perspective on trees and uh, and badgers and uh, the sky and all these things that dwarves don't normally like seemed really interesting to me. You seem to know a lot about the, the natural world, and so that's why we hang out. And hopefully at that point, that will, without delaying the game too much, inspire everyone else to sort of jump in and to start kind of introducing themselves through their characters so that it's not small talk, it's still play, but you get a little sense of who everybody is, at least from the point of view of their fictional characters, because really that's who you're going to be interacting with for the next four hours anyway, is, you know, uh, Siva Muckrake, not Jenny Smith. Yeah, I think that, you know, the whole point of RPGs, as you say, is to let you play with someone at the table in an agreed upon framework so that you don't have to parse social rules. You're too busy parsing the um, grappling rules. You can move through and engage on the basis of, hey, that was a good role. No one in the history of mankind has been appended by that statement. You can build a solid friendship from an appreciation of the natural 20, uh, certainly long enough to, to get the table going. And then just in general, the way you engage at the table is the way you engage at anything else. Find something that the other person is doing that you genuinely like and approve of and tell them that. People like being approved of and liked. So if you're like, hey, man, that was a really great hit on that uh, bugbear. Good for you. That's a great way to engage. Just like, wow, you are really good at this um, uh, improv uh, talking uh, to the guards. I just usually say I roll my charisma. How do you do that? You know, get you know, engage on the basis of how do I engage? Maybe that's another way, but it's the same way that you can do it. And just the fact of the table happening, the fact of the game happening gives you more positives to immediately latch onto that are going to be unalloyed positives because, you know, they've been quantified for you. Uh, that was a good hit. That was, Oh, rough luck on that miss, you know, whatever. Don't engage in, in table trash talk, engage in table up talk and people enjoy that and they'll respond well to it. And it, you, you see that, you know, in any bar, you go into a bar, you don't know anybody. The, the, the hockey game is on pretty soon. You're all rooting for the Blackhawks or whatever. And, and then, and now you're friends with all those guys because you've got that common thing going on that you're all invested in. The same thing happens at the table. You're all invested in killing those bugbears. Right. Uh, something that happens all the time in role-playing, obviously, is planning, deciding what you're going to do. So you're, you've all realized that there's a goblin war and that you have to go down into in order to get the, uh, the sock of destiny. And so if you have an idea uh, as to what to do, you can introduce that in a way that invites participation by just phrasing a question. So rather than saying, hey, we should go down and uh, light these uh, canvas balls on fire and drop them in and that'll freak them out and then uh, they'll be surprised, you can say, uh, well, I have a plan, uh, but I want to know what you think about it. Or what would you say if we were going to set these balls on fire and, and throw them down in? So that uh, one of them is a declarative, we should do this. 
Whereas the other one is saying the same thing, but it's what do you think about this? So that it's putting it out there and inviting other people to participate. From your point of view, it's not risking as much emotionally for you to uh, put a suggestion out there and then having it shot down if you're phrasing it as a question. So what do you think about this? Rather than we should do this makes a huge difference. Or if you don't have an idea, engage with somebody else who also maybe seems a little shy and says, so do you, so what do you think we should do about the goblin warren? Now, what might happen there is that the uh, super socially comfortable players might jump in over top of both of you. But that's, an, I think, another good suggestion is sort of look around the table and see who else seems a little shy and pick them as your person to engage with so that you can sort of uh, team up in getting your share of table time from the players who are immediately uh, comfortable or perhaps even, dare we say, a bit of a spotlight hog. And if there is someone who is a spotlight hog, you can also use their uh, extroversion uh, for uh, as sort of your springboard into engagement. So if there's somebody who does a lot of talking and proposes a lot of plans, ask them questions. It's like, so, oh, so you have this elaborate plan of, of how we're going to get in the Goblin War and, uh, well, what about this? So, and again, you're not arguing with that person or confronting them, but you're inviting them to amplify what they're already doing. And there you can sort of use their willingness to talk as a way of sort of your getting involved in, in the game as well. Another thing that you can do is in, in addition to engaging sort of at the elements of the, of the tabletop is you can do the, and, and again, this is a thing, whether you're, you're shy or not, it's just good game practice is to look for ways to co-create at the table. And that might be co-creating, like planning the assault on the bugbears, or it might be a co-creation of, oh, you're from the Lost Kingdom of whatever. It, my character's from the Lost Kingdom of whatever. What do we know about that Lost Kingdom together? And you can uh, engage in common creativity, which is another way to have something in common that you're building. Another way is to sort of ask yourself going in, what ball can I bring to the table that everyone else will want to engage with? So once you start going along on your adventure, for example, you have a, a badger. So you can then describe the stuff that your badger is doing as a druid. And you say, oh, well, uh, he goes over and uh, uh, sniffs your pack. Is there any food in, in the pack? Because he really likes sausages. And so, again, that invites the other player to engage with you. Or, uh, you know, once you realize that the uh, GM is running a an investigative game where it's all about uh, finding out what the ghouls are up to uh, outside of uh, Providence. Uh, you can say, well, I'm a long-term resident of Providence and I'm uh, happy to get to show any of you guys around. Uh, do you want to, uh, do you want to go down to my favorite cafe? And so you can uh, introduce the idea. I'm a long-time resident of this place. And so that can then give the GM uh, the ability to say, oh, well, as a as a longtime resident, Dax's character knows that the lighthouse has always been thought of as as haunted. And then other people might then start asking you, well, you know the area. Is there a professor who we could go to to ask them about this? And so um, even though the information is flowing really from the GM, you sort of become a conduit for that. And that also gives people another reason to to talk about. So once you see what the situation is, you can sort of think, what life detail can I give to my character that would be interesting to have It's not going to wreck the GM's plans, but are going to give other characters reasons to engage with me. And so uh, now they may or may not pick up the ball, which is why I'd recommend that you do something, you know, a little more 
outgoing than that, but maybe, you know, you just want to sort of go halfway and give other people an opportunity to come toward you rather than going toward them. So I think, uh, Ken, unless you have uh, further suggestions, I think we've uh, answered uh, Dax's question. I hope he has uh, more fun making connections with uh, gamers next time he hits the table. And uh, I think we need to connect with the commercial and our next segment. Hey kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. It's time to root through your collection of passports to get the very best one and to put on the special contact lenses that enable you to defeat any retinal scan because it's time to once again head into the top secret parameters of the Tradecraft Hut. And this time, our Tradecraft is not uh, current events oriented, but (laughs) rather talks about the history of the CIA, which the CIA has finally put online. The CIA was required a while back to declassify a whole a realm of old documents and make them available for freedom of information uh, requests, but notoriously made it phenomenally logistically difficult for any journalist or researcher to actually access the documents. Well, uh, in this crazy world we're living in, they finally threw up their hands and said, oh, what the heck, we're just going to create an online database and you can just type in your search terms and bring up the PDF scans of all these uh, decades and decades worth of uh, documents and uh, some of them are just like clippings that we clipped out of the newspaper and retyped. Uh, but some of them have all sorts of interesting stuff in them. And so Ken, uh, as the uh, resident researcher on this podcast into uh, matters espionage and into the CIA, what search terms uh, were you most excited about typing in to the new accessible document database? Well, the first thing that I did look into when this uh, database dropped was a program that the CIA got up to called MK often or operation often. And as you may guess, looking up the word often in a Google search does not give you what you want. Usually. (laughs) Uh, So MK often, however, was part of the general rubric of MK ultra mind control 
and uh, some of the other research programs that were going on around that same time. And according to one author who may or may not be a crazy person, MK often diverged from the notion of chemical mind control into the notion of occult mind control and using mesmerism and telepathy and black magic and voodoo and all the other influence at a distance stuff. Right. And so this is the, the territory of the John Ronson book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Right. Uh, Men Who Stare at Goats is still more the, the, the remote viewing type stuff and the turning yourself into a in, into a, a, a Buddha warrior for Jesus in America. It's less about actual voodoo and um, uh, black magic and stuff like that. Uh, this was the purview of Operation Often, allegedly. Now, when you look up MK Often or you look up Operation Often in the thing, you get three pages, all of which refer to it in the context of an operation called Chickwit, which was a Defense Department drug testing program and MK Ultra, which is good old LSD and mind control. And so the notion is that often was just one of the many parts of that. And in fact, the three documents that I read mostly were in regarding the CIA attempting to say that was a defense department program. We had nothing to do with it when asked questions by senators and the senators to their credit didn't put up with that, but there's no way to get the CIA to produce a document if they say it doesn't exist, hence the FOIA reading room. And so the question has, has been left in abeyance, at least by that search. I have also, you know, there's a, there was actually, I think a, a link that I saw that was just, all right, we know you're all searching for UFOs. Here's the link. And that, that gives you a, a lot of the good stuff like that. Also, I, I looked up my buddy, uh, Edward Lansdale, uh, who I think we may have discussed in this context, the psychological operations officer who, uh, made Raymond McZay president of the, uh, Philippines and then made DM president of South Vietnam and then got out of the presenting business while the getting was good, but had all manner of other stuff that he may or may not have been up to. And the Lansdale, uh, result comes back with about 500 releases. So that's lots of good stuff in there. So of course I first typed in Charles Fort, right? And, uh, you get a, uh, several pages of, of stuff, including, and that is also your way to go directly to the UFO report. And, uh, the version that I happened to bring up was the declassified, as in the less classified at the time version of the UFO report, along with an explanation of what was in the classified version that they weren't allowed to tell you, including the fact that they, the CIA, had chaired this particular uh, commission. Right. But then, of course, you bring up the the basically the list of what their investigative elements are and what they thought were the very most promising cases and why they seem promising, but ultimately that there was nothing that they could determine and that they determined that there was uh, not a threat. So it's not the uh, mother load that you're dreaming for. If uh, you're one of those folks who thinks that the government is about to announce the existence of aliens in three months from now, where three months is always three months from the current date. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a uh, it's a fun document nonetheless. And I think one of the great things about this is because it takes you to PDF versions, you can then see the physical style of the different documents over the ages. So if you're trying to create a, a handout for a, uh, a a book uh, in Ken's case, or just for your own uh, game, you can see well here's the typewriter typeface they used at this time, and here is the formatting of the document and here's what the headers and the footers look like and so uh, even that is really cool as 
uh, just an artifact that you can then uh, you know, print out and hand out to your players as as if it's an Armitage file or something. And one of the things that they do have is they have a, if you look, find a document, it'll give you um, more like this and then things that you might be interested in given that you searched it. So it's not as, not as smart as the Amazon more like this, but it's still fun to have done one search and then be told, hey, if you're into the result for alchemy, maybe you'd like this other thing. Yes. Well, they're not trying to sell you merch. So they're, no. <laughs> they're not Sadly. as sophisticated as, uh, as Jeff Bezos would have it. And again, obviously if you start looking into, um, uh, some words are wind up being used, uh, allegorically like alchemy, for example, you know, will Nixon summon the alchemy to change our relations with China type questions, as opposed to, you know, does the CIA have an alchemy program, which is the question that all America wants to know the answer to. Right. So are there uh, search terms you're going to find yourself using a lot as you continue to work on uh, Fall of Delta Green? I suspect that I'm going to wind up having to figure out the specific grammar of this search engine. So if I can, for example, type in uh, Sidney Gottlieb, who is the famous head of the chemical division of the CIA's scientific research program, and then I could, you know, put in Sidney Gottlieb and, you know, whatever, then that may be able to narrow stuff down, but I have to figure out how their how their Boolean logarithms work on this search engine, because I suspect they have not gone out of their way to make it super easy to find stuff, even in the online version of the CIA reading room. So uh, can we generate plot hooks from uh, from the existence of this? What uh, if our uh, fictional character is sitting down in front of this uh, interface? Uh, what uh, crazy espionage uh, adventure can flow from that? Well, I think the first thing I mean, there's a couple of ways. First of all, you can yourself just type in a word that you're curious about and read the memos that do come up as though they are meaningful as opposed to just nonsense. So when you have a search on the word alchemy and you get a response about the city of Kashgar, which says the level of medicine would seem like alchemy, you're like, oh, okay, this is actually something that accidentally slipped out of our genuine uh, CIA search for living alchemists in Central Asia and that that's what, you know, after they go into Afghanistan, they find that there's an alchemical program going on, sort of a, um, uh, mysterious, um, uh, like in, instead of the old, um, uh, Muslim bomb, this is, would be the Muslim alchemist that someone is, is looking for. And so they're hunting down alchemists labs in the old remnants of the, of the Silk Road. And that, Right there is a is a fun campaign that you developed just because someone used the word alchemy in the report on the city of Kashgar. Um, you can do that kind of thing, you know, constantly where you find, uh, for example, that a general uh, in South Vietnam has a strange alchemy that binds his country together. Well, that's just using it poetically, but you're like, okay, maybe there's alchemy in Vietnam. What do we know about Vietnamese alchemy? What do we know about, did the French bring it? Is it a combo French-Chinese alchemy that they've developed like uh, Vietnamese food is? And so... You have any number of threads that you can do as the GM just by putting in a fun word and seeing what comes up and then deliberately misinterpreting the result. In game, if you've got a guy who's uh, an investigator, an Ice Black Agents investigator, and he types the word vampire in to the query, you're going to find some stuff, but you're going to have to pretend in the context of the game that it's a reference to another report that has to be hunted down. You're like, oh, this is referencing this other report that's still redacted or that that's still classified. Who would have clearance for that? I'm going to spend a network and find out who was on that program and I'm going to go hunt them down because the word vampire has been, has been accidentally declassified, hasn't been redacted fully from this report. And uh, ideally is not referring to the Soviet bloc uh, aircraft vampire, but is actually referring to genuine vampires. 
I, I was disappointed that uh, not much came up when you type in Rothko. Uh, so there's <laughs> not a lot on the uh, CIA sponsorship of abstract expressionism, but there are announcements uh, uh, to staff uh, explaining what the new public art uh, installed in the uh, building is. And so there's a bunch of those and uh, y- you could decide to imbue that with the significance of that this, uh, you know, a piece of art that somehow it becomes a MacGuffin that it's been stolen from the uh, agency and uh, you have to find out why or it's been pulled. You know, you might make up a fake release saying, uh, you know, this has been removed for conservation and then to figure out why, you know, this particular color field painting has a significance that isn't immediately obvious and you can have a, an adventure that springboards from that. So uh, is there anything else that you're uh, going to think you want to look for in, in future or have we... Uh, at this point, plumbed uh, the depths of what the database has has done or or will do for you in the months ahead. I mean, me specifically, it's it's. I'm almost not. I'm almost certainly not going to dive into this because what you've got right now, especially with the '60s, is such a deep drowning amount of already available material that going and asking the CIA to give me more is just going to slow the process down. So you're waiting for some other researcher to find the crazy. Exactly. To start, to start digging in. Or if I'm at a, at more towards the beginning of a project, I could use this to find directions that I might pursue the specifics. Now, again, it's not impossible that I will be curious about a, a, a known individual type their name in and see what comes up. Uh, like I did with Edward Lansdale, you might do that with John Lilly, the, a uh, dolphin experimenter guy. Tom Slick, who we talked about in a previous episode. I put him in and he doesn't show up. He comes up uh, in uh, connection to a uh, a peace chair that he uh, set up at a university. Yeah. So there are a couple glancing references to him, but unfortunately none of his uh, big photology. Right. Is, uh, the word Yeti described. gives you very disappointing results, not least because a lot of these PDFs are crappily OCR'd from Russian. Right. And so you wind up with a lot of things that look very promising, and then you click on it, it's, oh, it's just the OCR trying to read Russian. Stupid OCR. (laughs) Well, while we're uh, complaining about poor OCR, I guess we should uh, uh, head on out uh, to our next segment. the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come.
come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Andrew M. Reichart. John Rogers. Brian Malcolm. Adam Grokjohn. And Justin Cavern. The sound of pipe being laid, the inexpressible sense of momentum, and the clearly marked transitions between acts tell us we've entered the comforting confines of the narrative hut. But in the narrative hut, there is discomfort aplenty because Patreon backer Jeremiah Genest asks, Given current events, I'd love to hear your take on what differentiates political horror from political thriller. With the top examples and a few gaming ideas, not asking for a lot is our Jeremiah, but what, Robin? Those are the privileges that come with the Patreon backerhood. Exactly. So what, Robin, to start at the top, then, differentiates a political horror movie from a political thriller? Uh, So thriller and horror, I think, are stylistic markers to the way the narrative uh, progresses. So a political thriller... Uh, you think is going to be about action and betrayal and danger, and it's going to be heavily focused on uh, momentum. And uh, also, normally when we think of that term, we are not thinking of either uh, science fiction-y or supernatural uh, tropes being layered onto that. So if you tell me, you know, there's an exciting new uh, political thriller uh, starring Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling, I'm not going to expect that that is going to have, uh, you know, monsters in it. Whereas the combination of political and horror also, to me, I think indicates something that is often more allegorical than right. we genre fans are uh, looking at. That you have something like um, uh, the They Live or Night of the Living Dead, which are both super political movies, but are not about the political process in the way that if I hear something's a political thriller, I think, oh, this must be about politics. Right. So, for example, Lord of the Flies is one of the, I think, bedrock works of political horror, but there's nothing supernatural about it. And although, you know, they're, you know, kids in danger and and having bad things happen to them, we don't normally think of that as being part of the horror corpus, the way that something by Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft is. But, you know, it's actually, that's about something that to me, Speaking of current events, is much scarier is the way that, you know, it's about the way that people can suddenly devolve. And Lord, of the, Lord of the Flies is almost political theory horror. Yes. Right? And a, uh, a newer example of, of that would be uh, last year's High Rise, uh, which is uh, basically Lord of the Flies with adults in an apartment building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, there's nothing overtly supernatural about that, but it's got a lot of horror tropes from the, uh, the mad scientist to the... Uh, crazy descent into violence and there's sort of a anti-mainads that is um, mainads who bring order. And so I think there's sort of a, a level of, of fable. Uh, certainly 1984 is full of horror imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally if there's a, uh, a, a book or a film where uh, someone has uh, a, a rat cage uh, set up around their face, we're going to assume that that is uh, uh, a work of horror. And that anything in a way that sort of interrogates our relationship to torture, given current events, almost inevitably becomes a work of political horror. So, uh, Hostel, which I, uh, you know, have to say I haven't seen, uh, definitely has a political 
subtext to it and is a horror film. Yes. Yeah. Hostel is a, is a, is a great example of a movie that is a political film without being about politics in any way. But it's very clearly not just about torture, but it's also about Americans overseas and what is our job as Americans and what is our nature as Americans. And are we just a plague upon the land? Are we deserving of our comeuppance from this, uh, quasi supernatural, uh, torture, uh, impresarios at hostel or because the hero does in fact, you know, completely selflessly risk his life to save people. Is that a commentary about Americans? Is it, we should be going out overseas in search of monsters to destroy in John Quincy Adams's great line. And so hostile is sort of, it interrogates itself while it's also presenting the, the issues through a, a modern day fairy uh, lens. I, you know, hostile is a terrific example of a, of a movie that's deeply politi- political while not actually being what I would call a political horror movie in the same way that you would say something's a political thriller. Uh, well, again, it's hard to think of any like work of horror that is about the literal mechanism of doing politics. I have, I have, I've come up with a few that are at least closer to political thrillers or closer to political in that sense. Um, obviously the purge series, uh, with the purge election day being the most recent example, that would be a, a explicitly political, uh, in that sense, horror franchise, because it's a political act that has created the purge. Very much it's about social response to that political act. And then the purge election year is about literally having an election over whether or not we're going to have a purge and the shadowy committee of evil white guys that is always out there, uh, messing with the, our, uh, non purge having senator and, and that kind of, uh, explicitly political interweaving has been inherent in the, in the franchise from the beginning. So the purge is an example, I think, of straight up political horror in that sense. Another couple of examples would be from your buddy, David Cronenberg, the dead zone, obviously being political horror straight up. Um, uh, you know, Christopher Walken discovers that this guy is going to be elected and be a terrible, horrible apocalyptic president. And that's horror right there. And you are the one guy who can stop it. And it has a thriller pacing, but it's also very much a horror novel. Uh, and then scanners, I think is, is very about the interrelation of politics and science and corporations in a very explicitly political way. You know, in, in the way that if it were not telepaths who blow up your mind, but was just some sort of um, uh, experimental drug or something, it would be a straight up political thriller and no one would ever question that. Yeah. Any uh, mad scientist movie basically from the paranoid 70s on is also highly likely to have a uh, political content about uh, authority and, and secrecy and to be drawing in, you know, both the mythic resonance of, of the post church commission CIA with, uh, you know, whatever the issues of the day are. So stranger things, uh, would also, uh, uh, fit that as, as well back to the, uh, allegorical though, I think probably the greatest work of political horror is invasion of the body snatchers. Yes. Classic Donald Siegel, except no imitations. Yes. Uh, and the formula can be repeated though, uh, over different eras of politics, because the the metaphorical concern of all of a sudden the world is is changing and the people around you are changing and your friends have shifted their allegiance is, uh, I think, something that will always be salient, but always becomes especially salient when you start to fear that things are, are going south. Also, um, not something that we would normally think of when you think of political horror, but that has giant bug monsters and 
the moment when your friend shows up wearing the uh, SS uniform, of course, is the Verhoeven version of Starship Troopers, uh, which I wouldn't uh, stock it in that section in the <laughs> video store, if uh, people remember what video stores were. But uh, I think it's clearly, if I was writing a critical essay, uh, it would go in and with this list of other films that we're talking about. And so in terms of turning this into uh, a game situation, you know, political horror is one of the things I'm going to be addressing in the Yellow King role-playing game about how, you know, thoughts uh, can sort of uh, filter in from the world of the irrational and, and change the world in a way that you can't trust and lead to totalitarianism uh, is uh, something that if you believe that the real monster out there, the people, who, the, the thing you really have to fear is uh, people in the aggregate, what people will do under certain conditions, uh, getting back to the Lord of the Flies and what political structures that they will um, erect around themselves that I think that's, uh, you know, our sort of struggle for examples, I think kind of indicates that it's an under examined area. It's going to be, it's a little bit of a challenge to do that in a role playing context because uh, authoritarian states constrain the actions of everyday people and role players don't like to have their actions constrained. So uh, one of the main areas that I'll be focusing on is just what happens immediately after you've toppled the uh, supernaturally fueled authoritarian regime, but there's all still sorts of monsters creeping in the background. How do you rebuild society afterwards? And that allows you to deal with all of those themes, but also gives players the ability to move freely and do things freely that uh, I think they need to have so that they don't turtle up completely. Yeah, and, and obviously Nice Black Agents is uh, pretty much explicitly about casting a, a mirror into the, in the same way that, uh, you know, the Bourne trilogy and other great thrillers are casting a mirror into the world and coming back with a, a structure that, um, uh, that in one case provides thriller and in this case provides horror. Uh, that if there is a mysterious conspiracy of vampires out there, they are explicitly involved in directing the affairs of nations, possibly your nation. Who knows? And so deciding, you know, at what point do you start hammering stakes in? As opposed to say, well, you know, they're, they may be running by vampires, but at least, you know, we've got, uh, we've, we've got gay marriage. So that's fine. Um, you get to make all those decisions as the GM deciding, oh, the vampires are all Nazis or the vampires are all communists or the vampires are all the CIA or whatever. So you can make your villains, uh, the, the pawns of vampires. Or you can also present a, what I would think is a slightly more interesting touch where you have, People you ordinarily would not be teaming up with, but maybe you need them to fight the vampires in the same way that we needed Stalin to fight Hitler and we needed Pinochet to fight uh, communism or whatever. And you make these unsavory alliances as you move through life, which is, of course, how politics are created. And it's why people often find politics unpleasant. I would like to go back, if I might, to a sort of a sub sub set of movies that at the time were not seen maybe as horror or at the time were politics movies, but looked at now are clearly horror movies. And I'm thinking of Gabriel over the white house, which was uh, starring uh, Walter Houston and uh, directed by Gregory LaCava, whoever that is 1933 and script doctored by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, his own self. And it's about a, a crummy uh, Republican president who dies in a car accident and is replaced 
but his mortal shell is inhabited by the archangel Gabriel who immediately suspends civil liberties and executes enemies of the state and then uh, threatens global war. If people don't um, uh, sign on to his, um, uh, his one world policies. So at the time in 1933, it must've appealed to somebody, but looking at it now, it's like, holy crap, this is the shadow out of time. If instead of taking a Miskatonic anthropology professor, they took the president. It, it's very great race of yith over uh, the White House, not Archangel Gabriel over the White House. And watching it is just jaw-droppingly amazing, uh, especially when you realize that FDR, you know, was like, yes, excellent. Let's make him more fascisty, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. uh, Gregor Lukava <laughs> is best known for My Man Godfrey, uh, perhaps the uh, ultimate screwball comedy or one of the ultimate screwball comedies. Right. To move back from that all-important uh, uh, footnote to uh, gaming political horror, uh, I... Uh, wrote and have up on the Pelgrane site a drama system pitch set in the Knight's Black Agent's world where you play the vampire council. So you are the, it's the other side of a Knight's Black Agent's game where you're competing for, uh, uh executive power and maybe you've got some, uh, uh Jason Bourne like, uh, burn spy out there who one of you is trying to track down in the background. And so, uh, definitely that's how I, if I was to set out to do a horror game that also was about the mechanisms of politics, whether it's vampires or uh, people who are possessed by uh, Yithian aliens or, or whatever the supernatural twist is on top of the, you know, West Wing meets whatever kind of monster you want. Uh, I would use that as a template and use a uh, drama system to play it out. Yeah, I, I think the drama system would be great for that kind of system either the all vampires are meeting or we have another uh drama system campaign for the dracula dossier uh campaign frame called prevenient calyx where you're playing the dukes of edom who are trying to figure out how to manage vampires on the one hand the bureaucracy on the third hand and this bunch of burned spies who think that they know things on the third hand and so that's the sort of civil service horror i guess is what that would be not quite political yes, uh, but still yes, vampire prime minister <laughs> Yes. Yes. Vampire minister. Yes. Um, so that's, uh, that, that's another possibility of uh, politics as it is carried out, as opposed to, as it is decided, um, uh, another option for, for your role playing. Uh, well, if there's anything, uh, here in this segment that we are afraid of more than horror itself or more than politics, it's running long. Uh, so we're going to, uh, flee, uh, like a burn spy, uh, through the cover of this next commercial to the final segment of this episode. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you!
The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're standing right next to the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and yes, sometimes even mutilate it. And this time, I think, I think we may be doing the latter. Yeah. <laughs> At the request of, I think we very much have of, to. Uh, Patreon backer Doc Cross, a uh, Patreon backer and non-player uh, character in uh, Over the Edge. Uh, so given Doc's famous connection to the Cut-Ups conspiracy on the island of Alhamarha, it is not surprising that his assignment for Ken is to get in his time machine and to go back and ensure that the Bear Flag Empire of our most noble emperor, Norton I, is a success. And maybe Mark Twain could help out. So I don't know, Ken, if you've decided to ultimately create that timeline, but I'm sure you have researched it. So I'm sure you're ready to tell us, for those who don't know, about uh, Emperor uh, Norton I. Uh, he lived in San Francisco, but I believe he was emperor of all of uh, America. Uh, he declared himself uh, such in 1859. Uh, what else do we know about him? Emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico. So don't say Emperor Norton never did anything for you. What we know about him is that he was uh, an Englishman who spent most of his time before San Francisco in South Africa. He emigrated to to San Francisco to attempt to make money uh, from gold rush miners by uh, trading in rice futures. He managed to bollocks that up and went bankrupt. And the bankruptcy apparently sent him around the bend. Yes, his, his business plan of importing rice was ruined by the business plan of a bunch of other people importing rice. Yes, as as it happens to happen. He attempted to corner the market on rice, which is great if Peru didn't exist, apparently. Peru <laughs> sent lots of rice, and the whole system came apart. Uh, the sort of uh, drop-off from being a millionaire to being a um, millionaire now, and he was like tens of thousandaire then, uh, into a, a transient living in a flop house. Uh, sent him around the bend, and much like Hildred Castain, he decided that he was an emperor, but unlike Hildred Castain, he was a fun, happening emperor, not a weird Hasturian emperor. He uh, would wander the streets of San Francisco in a uniform that was provided to him by area pranksters. Um, he had a hat with a cockade on it. He would wear a mix of Union and Confederate uniforms during the Civil War as a way of emphasizing his emperorness over the whole country. He was all about unity. He was all about unity. And he was beloved by the press because he was always good for copy on a slow news day. And occasionally they wouldn't bother asking him. They would just make up something that the Emperor Norton had said and run it themselves. And in some cases, newspapers would run sort of disguised editorials on a topic and pretend it was something that the Emperor Norton said. Given the paucity of imperial records, uh, we have no way of knowing <laughs> which of those things were things that the emperor said, which of them were things the emperor said in exchange for drinks uh, to a reporter, and which of them were things that the reporters just made up and put down. One of his acquaintances, if not buddies, was Mark Twain, who at the time was a newspaper man, I think for the San Francisco Call, I want to say he was one of the San Francisco newspapers, and uh, Mark Twain being having an eye for weirdos and characters, certainly uh, spent some amount of time buying drinks, one assumes, for the Emperor Norton. He would, um, as he became sort of micro-famous, even moving up maybe to mini-famous, uh, tourists would come in and he would sell them imperial money, the imperial script, uh, basically a fancy way of, of charging for his autograph. And so they would change $10 American into $10 imperial, and the Emperor would be able to spend his $10 on food or whatever. Um, some San Francisco establishments would let him eat for free as a tourist attractor. Other San Francisco establishments 
presciently said, we're not feeding bums no matter who they're the emperor of. Go away. Um, he was, I think, tried for vagrancy at one point, but uh, the judge said something on the uh, lines of the defendant has injured no one, impoverished no one, and killed no one, which is rather better than most people in the emperor or king line of business. <laughs> <laughs> and so refused to um, uh, toss him in the clink. So he, he sort of went on his merry way. Uh, eventually he died, uh, as do all mortals, even emperors. And uh, there was a parade, of course, because it's San Francisco for his funeral cortege. And they buried him in the Masonic Cemetery because it turns out he was a Freemason in addition to all of his other uh, good habits. Uh, according to the newspapers, there were 30,000 people uh, who lined the streets. Again, these are the same newspapers who had been making, you know, some degree of circulatory bank by making up things that Norton the first said. But San Francisco being what it is, America being what it is, and emperors being what they are, I think looking for textual accuracy in the world of the Emperor Norton is perhaps... Uh, hunting up uh, the wrong side of the world. Now, last time I looked at Twitter, uh, we were still in the Trump administration and not ruled by a successor of Emperor Norton. So I assume you haven't done it yet. But when you go back to make uh, tales of Norton uh, real, how are you going to go about that? All right. There are two problems with making uh, the Emperor Norton a real emperor. One, he's a crazy, drifty, homeless person. He's not a real emperor. No one ever paid him any attention. There is no historical way to make anyone pay him attention. In strict, strictu sensu, historicity can't happen, ain't going to happen. B, if you could make it happen, it would involve breaking up the union, because even if he becomes emperor of California, which is, I suppose, in the realm of impossibilities less impossible, he's not going to be the emperor of Maine, where they don't get to see a, a, a happy, shambly, homeless boy wandering around uh, cadging nickels for his autograph. They're just going to say, this is nonsense. We're proper Mainers. We don't have emperors. We barely have governors and, uh, and, and rebel against him. So are you saying doc's question is implausible? I'm saying doc's que question is to a certain mindset. And that mindset might be historicity. Uh, it's, it's implausible, but you can perhaps create a system or a situation in which the emperor Norton has some degree of greater recognition than he has now, and California is more independent than it is now. And that, of course, depends on the Albert Sidney Johnston moment in California history. And Albert Sidney Johnston was the commander of the Department of the Pacific, which was the U.S. military department that covered the Pacific Coast. And he was in charge of California right before the Civil War. And as a guy who was born in Texas, people in California thought, Hey, maybe as a guy who's born in Texas, he might be willing to bring California out into the Confederacy. There is some evidence, and I don't know how much evidence and whether it is conclusive. My theory would be no, that at one point or another, we know that there were numerous Copperhead plots in California during the Civil War to engage in various things such as piracy, uh, the capturing of revenue cutters, et cetera, et cetera. The union was very much funded by the proceeds of the California gold mines, which would be packed onto a railroad, uh, and shipped, uh, east. Uh, so the, um, the, the, the Confederate Copperhead guys would be very interested in stopping that traffic. The British may or may not have had local agents who put their ore in to attempt one or another of these conspiracies to come off. And although, no one is willing to say so in so many words. The 
influential pro-Confederate guys in California might well have had some British backing in 1861 when they come to Albert Sidney Johnston and say, hey, man, how would you like to take California out of the Union for the Confederacy? Now, historically, Albert Sidney Johnston said, well, you'll note the color of my uniform. It's still Union blue. I'm not going to disobey my orders. And he shut down the, the plot, and that was that. But if Albert Sidney Johnston were less resolutely loyal, uh, if, if you can use that as a term for someone who takes up arms against the Union eventually, but resolutely loyal in the moment, if you sort of advance his treason by a couple of months, he might indeed bring California out and under the protection of a British man of war or nine that suddenly show up in San Francisco Bay. Now, the British don't want to govern California straight up. They would need a puppet government to run California for them. And the puppet government, since California was not a majority slave holding state by any stretch, they wound up going for Lincoln, though obviously not by a majority, by a plurality, when they had the election of 1860. So they would need someone who is a more plausible figurehead, and that plausible figurehead might have been the British subject, Joshua Norton, who they sort of prop up, provide a um, uh, an allowance to, and at the very least set him up as a competing center of political legitimacy for San Francisco, and then eventually sort of ease the British occupation of California in under Norton's aegis. I think that is as close as you get, and it's not that close, to a plausible California empire under Joshua Norton. So, in this, California becomes part of the uh, the Glorious Commonwealth. Or it, it becomes a, a protected state under the Glorious Commonwealth, but eventually, yes. Uh, certainly after Norton dies and uh, the British have to put up or shut up, I'm sure that they either attach it to Canada, which is not impossible, or they attach British Columbia to it and have a whole Pacific uh, colony that stretches the whole length of the thing. Yeah, Canada could be like a sort of an L on its side. Right. Or a, um, a gamma. Uh, as it were. So, uh, in that timeline, uh, I guess the Russian troll working on CalExit has already, his job was done for him before he was even born. Right. And I guess, uh, you know, California is... Uh, is laid back and, and even more polite, and uh, perhaps they, you know, there's a there's the maple syrup pipeline has uh, been set up to go all the way down the uh, continent, and uh, there's Walt Disney cartoons have the magic beaver in them. Uh, right, sounds yes. pretty good. Would yeah. there be any negative consequences of, of your actions? Well, I mean, the South wins the Civil War, so that's pretty negative. Uh, okay, so not so, a fan. So really, this personally. is one of those uh, uh, we've uh, run the simulation, mm -hmm. but we're not actually. We're not going to do it. No, although it would be it, it would be pleasant to go back and find the um, uh, Billy Beaver cartoons that uh, a different Walt Disney makes, or perhaps Walt Disney, rather than going to California. Uh, goes to somewhere else to make cartoons, goes to New York, or he goes to um, uh, Chicago, maybe. Maybe Chicago, because that's where America's first great film colony was. Maybe it stays America's great film colony, and Disney is established on the shores of Lake Michigan. Or there's a major blockbuster series of movies featuring uh, Mr. Dressup and the Friendly Giant. Because uh, Walt Disney was, of course, born in Chicago. So, there you go. Uh, well, I think uh, we have uh, successfully answered uh, Doc's question, if not actually changed history in a uh, direction that would, uh, except for, you know, extended maple syrup, uh, probably not be so great. So, I think we've uh, completed not just uh, another time journey, but uh, yet another episode of this exciting podcast. 
Stop having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Join such emperors of patronage as... Brendan Clarty. Jake Moss. Ben Blanding. Graham Wells. And Jeremy Forbing. Snag Cannon Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>